You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 14, we're going to read the first six verses. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, we come to your word and we are very grateful that you have given it to us and it is our desire that we might understand it. We know that that is the ministry of your spirit to illumine your word to us and to our hearts. And so we pray as the psalmist does that you would open our eyes that we may behold in your word wonderful things. Give us a confidence in what is written and give us a love for the truth and unite our hearts in the truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week after the message on troubled hearts, truth for troubled hearts, uh, somebody asked a question which I thought was a good one, and I figured I would answer this question just by way of reminding you of what we talked about and introducing the text for this morning. And the question was, was this, how do I know if my heart is troubled and the trouble in my heart is actually lack of trust and fear and doubt or if it is just my experience of emotions? That's a good question, isn't it? How do I know if my heart is troubled? How, do I, how can I discern between, between this being doubt and this just being the reality of my emotional situation? Because we are emotional creatures and, and we have to confess that. We acknowledge that. On that spectrum between uh, hyper-emotional people and sociopaths who have no emotion... Some people are going to be far over here, sort of in, in this, I would call it the estrogen zone, but you know what I mean. It's a more emotional zone over here. Some people are going to be over here where I would be at on, on the non-emotional side of things. I'm not a, I'm not a hyper-emotional person. I'm not a, I'm not somebody who, whose emotions can be played easily. So all of us, every one of us is going to be somewhere on that spectrum between really emotional and, and not really emotional. And depending on the circumstance that we are in, we are going to be experiencing different things and seeing things from different vantage points. And we are going to have these emotions and pain that come on us because of the circumstances that we are in. So since we are emotional beings and and we cannot deny the reality that our circumstances and situations that trouble our hearts are painful, how do I know if this is doubt or if it's just the pain of the situation? Because the opposite of a troubled heart is a trusting heart, but that doesn't mean that the opposite of a troubled heart is a calloused, cold, apathetic indifference. My child is dying and I have no emotions because I wouldn't want to have a, a troubled heart. Right? Or I've been diagnosed with this and so I don't want to, I don't want to be upset about it. I don't want to have any emotions about it because that would be a troubled heart. The opposite of a troubled heart is not cold, calloused, apathetic indifference. 
The opposite of a troubled heart is a trusting heart. So when do does my experience of the pain of a situation or my experience of the emotions that are the result of troubling things happening to me, when does that cross the line into a sinful, worrisome, anxious, not trusting the Lord and doubting? Ultimately, I can't answer that question for you and you can't answer that question for me. Because the reality is there's simply no formula. There's no formula that says if you do this and this, it's okay, but if you do this, it's not okay. Really, we each of us has to examine our own hearts and say, okay, am I trusting in this? We can be thankful that troubles that come end up forcing us to trust the Lord more. And that is really one of the benefits of troubles. They force us to look heavenward, to fix our eyes on Him, and to exercise that trust and belief in the Lord even more. I find that sometimes I am like the man that came to Jesus in Mark chapter 9 whose son was even possessed. And Jesus said, to him who believes all things are possible. And do you remember what the man said in response to that? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Sometimes I feel like that man. I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. No uncertainty in my heart whatsoever that the Bible is true, that Christ is who he said he was, that my faith is is solidly grounded in him. That is, that's the mark of a divine faith. There's no doubt there. There's no wavering there whatsoever. But at other times, when troubles come, suddenly I realize that there are remnants of unbelief in the recesses of my heart that I hate. The benefit of troubles is that it exposes those remnants of unbelief so that I can deal with them. And I can say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And troubles are to faith what exercise is to muscles. Exercise, putting resistance on a muscle, builds the muscle and strengthens the muscle. When I was in high school, I did weightlifting. That was the one class that I excelled at in high school. Now, I know you can't tell that now, but I did. And the reason I weightlifted was not because I was uh, necessarily trying to accomplish anything. I just didn't want to be beaten up. And I figured the more intimidating you look, the less likely people are to pick on you. So that's why I lifted weights. And they told us in weightlifting class that you, in order to strengthen the muscles, you have to give it resistance. And you have to push it almost to the point where you feel like the muscle is going to snap or break or something's going to go wrong and then back off just a little bit. And it's the same thing with trials and, and tribulations. The Lord knows his sheep and he knows exactly how much we can handle without breaking us. And he knows exactly what is for our good. And he gives us enough resistance and enough pain and enough affliction to make our faith grow. And that's the point of it. And in the midst of the troubles, we are able to at least have enough self-awareness to say, okay, there is this issue of doubt and fear that I have to address and that I have to deal with. Though I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed unto him against that day, at the same time, I know that there is the remnant of doubt in my heart which dishonors the Lord and I need to deal with it. So I hope that answers the question. I don't know if it does or not. I mean, I guess basically just told you I don't know. When you've crossed that line, I know when I've crossed that line, and you, you I think, have to determine that for yourself. But Jesus knew that the disciples were vexed that they were discouraged, that they were fearful, that they were doubting. And that is why at the beginning of John chapter 14, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then on the heels of that first foundational truth for a troubled heart, that God is in control, that he is worthy of our trust, that he is worthy of our confidence, and that we are encouraged to believe in him instead of allowing doubts to rise in our hearts, to reaffirm our faith and cling tightly to him. Jesus begins immediately in verses 2 and 3 with familiar words to us. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, 
that where I am, there you may be also. And we understand that Jesus, when he describes his father's house, is talking about heaven. And he is giving to his disciples and thus to us through John a picture of heaven, some information about heaven. And really, I see in this passage three promises about heaven. Three promises about heaven in verses 2 and 3. I'm going to give them to you. First, he promises to prepare for us a place, to prepare a residence for us. In verse 2, I go to prepare a place for you. Second, he promises to personally return for us. And if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself. And the third thing, he promises to perpetually reside with us, that where I am, there you may be also. So three promises, to prepare a residence, to personally return for us, and then to perpetually reside with us. It is interesting and worth noting that as Jesus begins this section, which is intended to comfort the hearts of the disciples, that first out of the gate is a promise about heaven. There is something about meditating on heaven, thinking about heaven, understanding the realities of what uh, heaven offers and what heaven brings. There's something about that that tends to comfort our hearts. And by the way, if you want a good resource on heaven, I would recommend heaven is for... I couldn't even say that with a straight face. Heaven is for real. No, I would not recommend that book. I would recommend, actually, stay away from that. We'll deal with that in just a second. I would recommend Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. I've written about this in the newsletter. I've mentioned it from the pulpit. If you've never read that, it is one of the top... It used to be top 10. I'm going to have to say top 15 now uh, because I've seen some really good books recently. One of the top 10, let's say top 10 books that I have ever read, Heaven. It's not, I went to heaven, I saw it, this is what was there. It is a theology of heaven based upon Scripture. And, and Alcorn is very good with saying, this is what Scripture teaches, this is my sanctified imagination based upon what Scripture teaches. But here's what we know to be true. I would recommend that resource, Heaven by Randy Alcorn. It's only about this thick. It'll take you one night because once you get into it, you won't want to stop. Shake your heads, no. <laughs> Those of you who have read it are shaking your heads, no. Uh, it is worth noting that Jesus begins with that promise of the reality of heaven. There is something that, about heaven that comforts our hearts, and he knows this, and, 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 and is intended to comfort our hearts. If it were not so, he wouldn't have mentioned this. And not only does he mention it, he begins with this. This is first out of the gate. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And he is describing heaven. This is the first item that is intended to comfort us. That is why Paul in Colossians chapter 3 says we are to fix our minds on things above, not on things of this earth. And that's what he does in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he writes to Timothy. Listen to how he is describing his, his expectation of the glory that he was his after he died. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What was Paul thinking about as he sat in a Roman prison, suffering, and the expectation of death was very near to him? He was thinking about heaven. That's what comforts our hearts. It is intended to. That's why Jesus gives it here to the disciples. He describes to them heaven with the intention that upon thinking on those things, their hearts would be comforted. It is amazing how much we can endure if we know that there is a certain end to what we are enduring. You realize that? It's amazing how much we can endure. If I know that this is coming to an end, I can endure a 14-hour flight overseas with your back against the bathrooms and your knees up against the person in front of you. If I know that after 14 hours that flight's going to come to an end and I get to get off of there and stretch my legs and I can be free of that, I can endure 14, 16, 18, I can endure 24 hours of that just as long as I know it's coming to an end. It is amazing what we can endure if we know that something is going to come to an end. And it is the same with this life. We can endure 
the afflictions, the trials, the temptations, the sin, and all that it brings, all of the disease and the destruction, all of the things we hate, the tears, all of that we can endure it because heaven is for the Christian the most certain assurance that it will all come to an end. And heaven will repay in spades all that God has predestined for us and decreed that you and I should endure in this life. Heaven will pay that back in spades. So we can endure this life keeping our mind fixed on what is ahead. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, Christian, meditate much on heaven. It will help thee to press on and to forget the toil of the way. The veil of tears is but the pathway to the better country. This world of woe is but a stepping stone to a world of bliss. And after death, what cometh? What wonder world will open upon our astonished sight? So think much on heaven, he says. And he says, is it possible to think so much about heaven that you're actually of no use here? Have you heard that? That guy's so heavenly minded, he's of no earthly good. Most of the time when people say that, what they really mean is, you're so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly fun. You're not going to join with me in this. You're not going to join with me in that. You're not going to do this with me. You're just so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly fun. I don't think it's possible to be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. I think it's actually the opposite that is the case. It is those who are most heavenly minded that are of most good in this world and for this world. It's those who think the most about heaven that are evangelistic. It's those who think the most about heaven that reach out and serve others. Heaven is a motivation to purity. Heaven is a motivation to service. If I thought more about heaven, I would sin less. If I thought more about heaven, I would serve more. I find that I sin when I'm not thinking about heaven. I'm never, I'm never caught up in the raptures and the glories and contemplation of heaven and find myself sinning at the same time. That's usually not the case. It is usually when those thoughts are distant from my mind that I am most engaged in the things that are not good for this world. And the same is the case with service. I would be serve the Lord more if I thought of heaven more because I would be looking forward to that crown which He will give to all those who love His appearing. So it's not possible to be so heavenly minded you're of no earthly good and it is in Scripture, our duty, our responsibility, and our joy to meditate on the future that God has for His children. So let's do that. Let's look at the words of Jesus and begin first with the, His promise to prepare a residence for us. Verse 2, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Heaven is a prepared residence for us. My belief in heaven and my confidence in heaven has nothing to do at all with wishful thinking. I don't believe that heaven exists. I don't believe that heaven is real simply because it makes me feel good to believe that. It's not an intellectual opiate that I have to have in order to get through life. Atheists and agnostics will say that. You only believe in heaven because it makes life tolerable for you. And because life slaps you in the face and you're such a weak human being, you have to have something to look forward to to make you able to live through this life and to get through life day by day because you're so weak, so that you need that crutch. My belief in heaven is not an an emotional opiate for me. It's not something that just makes me feel good, and so I believe it because it makes me feel good. If somebody said that to me, my response would be, then explain to me why I believe in hell. Because there's nothing about eternal conscious torment that brings me any delight or joy whatsoever. I believe in hell for the same reason that I believe in heaven. Because Jesus said he was going to prepare a place for us. Jesus spoke of coming from heaven. Jesus speaks of returning to heaven. Jesus speaks of a heaven that awaits for those who have placed their faith in Him and who have been born again. So I believe in heaven because of the testimony of God's Word and because of the testimony of Jesus Christ Himself. That is for me sufficient. Whether I enjoy that belief or it brings me any joy whatsoever is irrelevant. I I believe it on the testimony of Scripture because that is enough for me. So now I ask you, is the testimony of Jesus concerning Scripture enough for you? 
Is it sufficient? You know, for many Christians, it's not sufficient. And that is why we are plagued with a dunghill full of books that purport to give first-hand experiences of going to heaven and coming back. One of the most, and I'll give you an example, uh, 90 Minutes in Heaven, Heaven is for Real, and one written by a non-Christian, even Alexander, who, as a non-Christian, went to heaven, experienced heaven, he wrote a book called Proof of Heaven. Now, these are on our website, you've read the reviews, etc. I'm going to give you an example, a couple of quotes from some of those books that show the insidious and deceptive uh, lie that is the foundation and premise of those books, and that is, this is the lie, that what is written in Scripture is not sufficient for us. So, for instance, Don Piper, who wrote 90 Minutes in Heaven, which is misnamed, by the way. It really shouldn't be 90 Minutes in Heaven. It should be 90 Minutes Outside the Gates of Heaven because he admits in the book that he never actually went into heaven. He just hung out around the gates outside of heaven, talked with his family and his relatives. So did he spend 90 minutes in heaven? According to the title, yes. According to the book, no. So it's not 90 Minutes in Heaven. It's 90 Minutes Outside the Gates of Heaven. And don't confuse Don Piper with John Piper. John Piper, good. Don Piper, bad. Don't Please, don't do There's not. They're not related. The only thing they have in common is that both of them sort of belong in the Baptist camp. Other than that, there are a world of separation between the two. Don Piper, in his book, 90 Minutes in Heaven, on page 128 and 129, he writes this. Now, I want you to listen to this carefully and see if you can pick out the insidious lie that is at the foundation of this assertion. Quote, I talk about my experience both publicly and to individuals. I'm writing about what happened because my story seems to mean so much to people for many different reasons. For example, when I speak to any large crowd, at least one person will be present who has recently lost a loved one and needs assurance of that person's destination. I feel so grateful that I can offer them peace and assurance. End quote. Pick out the lie. I need assurance that my loved one who trusted Christ is in heaven and that there is a heaven. To whom shall I turn? What shall I read? Scripture offer me assurance? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it mentions heaven, I guess. All I have there is the testimony of Jesus and the apostles and the prophets and the written Word of God. But I know Don Piper has been to heaven. I am so thankful that Don Piper can offer me what? Peace and assurance that heaven is actually for real. Do you see the insidious lie? That the testimony of Scripture is not enough. And therefore, we have Don Piper. Let me give you another example. Page 129. In fact, he says, quote, In fact, my experience has changed many things about the way I look at life. I've changed the way I do funerals. Now I can speak authoritatively about heaven from first-hand knowledge. End quote. Can you speak authoritatively about heaven? Jerry? Mel, can you speak authoritatively about heaven? Lanny? Not according to Don Piper, because you've never been there. Could he speak authoritatively about heaven before he had his experience? Apparently not. Now he can. Now he can speak authoritatively about heaven. I can speak about heaven with all of the authority of God himself. You know why? Because he has said it. I don't need an experience. This is all of the authority of heaven itself that heaven actually exists. I don't need to have an experience to be able to speak with authority on the subject on which God has spoken. But he seems to believe that when you get to heaven, if if Jim Osmond does a funeral, I can't really offer anybody peace or comfort or assurance or anything. I can't speak with any authority on the afterlife or how to get to heaven or what is in heaven or who's in heaven or what heaven is about. I can't do any of that because I've never been there. I've never, I don't have the first-hand knowledge. But if I can only visit heaven now, I can speak with authority on that subject. 
What is the authority in such a worldview? The experience is the authority. Let me give you one other example. He was speaking at First Chinese Baptist Church, and I don't know where this church was at, but the video of it is online, and he writes this, or he says this. He didn't write this. This is a quotation of what he said verbally. The question I keep asking more than any is this. Why did you let me see that and take it away from me? I thought it was a good question. I have a better answer now in 2008 than I had in 1989 when the big truck hit me. Here it is. So I could stand here today in the First Chinese Baptist Church and say to you without reservation, heaven is real. End quote. Before the experience, could he stand anywhere and say without reservation that heaven was real? Apparently not. But now that we have the experience, what do we have? The confidence that heaven is for real, right? And speaking of heaven is for real, since I brought up that train wreck of theology, be assured that the assumption in that book is no better than the assumption in 90 minutes in heaven. Even the title itself suggests that this is insufficient. As if all I have is Jesus and the apostles and the word of Christ and the written word. But if it weren't for Don Piper and if it weren't for a very imaginative four-year-old boy, I would be lost in a fog of uncertainty regarding heaven. Now I can know for certain. Now I can speak with authority. Now I can have peace and assurance. For 2,000 years we haven't had this. 2,000 years we've been without this. But oh, now we have them. I could speak for hours on this and I'm not going to. Let's get back to the words of Jesus. What I want you to, what I want you to see is that it, we get into verse 2. This is the authority. Jesus saying this, this is sufficient for me. And that's why he begins with, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. If you will not believe his testimony, then you will find yourself buying that dreck and reading it and thinking that it is comforting your hearts. And it can do nothing of the sort. All it does is undermine your faith. And all it does is encourage you to disbelieve what is already in Scripture. But we begin with what Jesus has said. Believe in me. Okay, that is settled. My confidence is in him. His word is enough. Now what does he say? In my Father's house are many mansions. Now I want you to notice the language that he uses, beginning in verse 2. I want you to notice the words, because these are important. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now the language is important. Houses, uh, dwelling places, abodes, where I am, there you will be. Is he describing primarily a place or is he describing a state of being? Some Christian theologians uh, cannot resist trying to spiritualize nearly everything that is written on the subject of heaven. And in doing so, I think that they sort of strip some of the meaning out of Scripture when it speaks about places. Uh, some Christian theologians just take heaven as being uh, more a state of being than it is an actual place. For instance, Millard Erickson in his book, Christian Theology, it's a big, thick Christian textbook uh, like this, covers it's a systematic theology textbook. It's a, it's a good one. Uh, depending on the subject that he's writing about, there are a few things in there that I would quibble over quite strongly, but for the most part, it's a good book. When he gets to heaven, I think he kind of misses the beat just a little bit. And he writes this, While heaven is both a place and a state, it is primarily a state. Now, I don't know what that means. And by state, he doesn't mean like state of Idaho. He means, a, apparently, I'm going to say a state of being. Right? Some existence. Uh, how do you exist without being in a place? That seems tough to answer that. 
But it's not primarily a place, it's primarily a state. Some sort of disembodied state maybe where you're just aware of your own existence and, and that's it. Donald Guthrie in his book, New Testament Theology, writes this, quote, Paul does not think of heaven as a place, but thinks of it in terms of the presence of God, end quote. Paul does not think of heaven as a place. He speaks of being caught up into the third heaven, into what he calls paradise. And he saw things there, which a man is not allowed to utter. That's not like Paul's describing a, just a presence, a state of being, or an actual place. It's a place. How can you, how can you be somewhere without being in a place? I mean, the, just the, the, the idea of being itself requires a place. You have to have a place to be. Otherwise, you're not really being, are you? So is heaven primarily a place or primarily a state? Are we only to think of heaven as just being some, uh, mystical existence in a state of being? Or is heaven an actual place? In my father's house are many dwelling Places, yeah. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Heaven is an actual place. It is a place that exists right now. Now, I've never been there. I don't expect to go there before I die. And I only expect to go there once. I don't expect to go there and come back. And if I ever say that I have, I give you permission to follow Jess and Dave in dragging me out of this building and stoning me. If I ever utter anything like that, heaven is a place. It is an actual place. It is where God is at. It is his dwelling. It is his his residence, as it were. We think of these these terms, places, residence, dwelling, uh, mansions, etc. These are spatial terms that describe a location. They describe a spatial entity. But we also have to say that there is something about the language here that seems accommodated to us. In other words, we aren't to understand that heaven is an actual, literal, only a house with many rooms. Jesus is using an analogy here that is intended to communicate things with which we would be familiar. I'm going to flesh out the analogy in just a second. So think of the house as being the place where God dwells. Also in Scripture, heaven is referred to as a country, a city, a kingdom, and a paradise. So all of those are are words or pictures used to describe some element or aspect of heaven, and each of those descriptions is language accommodated to our limited understanding, but it's, it's language intended to communicate something that we are familiar with. So, for instance, we, we might describe, we might think of heaven as being a country because of its vastness or its bigness. We might think of heaven as being, in terms of being a city because of the, the multitude of types of people that would be there, the activities of a city that go on there, and, and a gathering place for people of condensed people. We might think of heaven as being a paradise because of its lavishness and its lushness and its, and its greenness and, and all that paradise entails to us. There are, there are things in these different analogies that are intended to communicate for us what heaven is like. And, and so we have to think in those terms. And, and here it is the same with house and dwelling places. In my father's house are many what? Mansions, if you have the King James Version. Right? Mansions. Why mansions? If you have the King James, New King James, it says mansions. Mine says dwelling places. Other modern translations say rooms. There's quite a bit of difference between a dwelling place and a mansion in your mind, is there not? Right? Now, I live in a dwelling place. But by my standards, by American standards, it's not a mansion. I don't live like Shaquille O'Neal or any of those guys. I don't, I don't live in the... But compared to somebody who lives in a garden hut in Calcutta, I live in a mansion. I remember my mother-in-law brought a Chinese, a Japanese exchange student over uh, to Japan and while that person was staying with her, she brought him down to our place and she, and he was just in our house. Wow, you have three bathrooms? 
wow, so many rooms. Oh, they're used to these little tiny cubicle apartments in Japan like that. And they were overawed by this. I can't believe that he lives like this on a half an acre of land. This is unheard of in Japan. Of course, this is a different environment. My mother-in-law kept saying it was because they're rich. Oh, well, that's not true. I'm not rich. This is not a mansion. I don't live above the level of anybody else that I know, really. I mean, it's not a mansion in those terms. But for somebody who comes from a different environment, that would be a mansion. So there's, there is in our mind some difference between a dwelling place and a mansion. Where did the idea of mansions come in? And how did it get into the text? It's kind of an interesting little study. The word for dwelling places, or the King James translates as mansion, is the Greek word, Monai, M-O-N-A-I, not like Monet, Monet, like that, but M-O-N-A-I, and it just simply meant an abode or a dwelling place. And it is a form of a Greek word, M-O-N-E, or a, an A sounding E at the end, Monet, and it simply meant, it meant a, a dwelling place. It's only used twice in Scripture, once here in John 14, verse 2, and once in John 14, verse 23. Look at verse 23 of this chapter. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Same word. But it wouldn't make any sense for the King James translators to translate it mansions there, would it? We're going to love him and we're going to make our mansions with him. But the idea of abode or dwelling is the idea behind that word. And so that word, when it was translated from Greek into the Latin language in the first few centuries of church history, in the Latin Vulgate, the Latin word is mansions, M A N. S-I-O-N-E-S. Let me make sure I get that right. Mansions. Now, I don't know how to pronounce Latin words. I never studied Latin. I know that sounds French to you, but French is the only language I studied in high school, so it doesn't matter if I'm even saying I can make a German word sound French. So it mansions is it. Well, the King James translators took mansions, or that Latin word, and kind of followed the transliteration of that into English and just used the term mansions, which in Latin only means a dwelling place or an abode. So there, really the better translation would not be mansions in the sake, in the sense of these large, isolated, independent dwellings on vast tracts of land separated by acreages. That's not the imagery that's being portrayed here. Do you feel like I just took your mansion away from you, by the way? I hope you did. And I was sitting there thinking, I had a mansion in glory, and now I'm going to be living in a garden hut in Calcutta. <laughs> I hope that's not the idea. The, 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 the concept here is is not of these massive, ornate individual buildings on tracts of land. The imagery that Jesus is using. It's the Father's house. And everybody has individual dwellings on the Father's house. Now, what does that look like? I don't know. It doesn't describe that. But the, the, the intended imagery is of intimacy. Of intimacy. Of being in the Father's house. Like, I don't need a mansion. I'm, I'm content with the suite in the palace. I'm content with a, a one room. It can be a one room suite. <laughs> I live on all alone. No kids, no sinful wife, no sinful anybody. I'm all by myself. I am content with just a one room suite in a palace. I'm happy with that. I don't have to have the mansion, but that's the, that's the imagery. You got, you got a room in the palace. Heaven is the Father's house. In that house, there is a, a multitude of rooms. D.A. Carson, has a helpful comment on this. He says, Since heaven is here pictured as the Father's house, it is more natural to think of dwelling places within a house as rooms or suites. The simplest explanation is best. My Father's house refers to heaven, and in heaven are many rooms, many dwelling places. The point is not the lavishness of each apartment, but the fact that such ample provision has been made that there is more than enough space for every one of Jesus' disciples to join him in his Father's house. That's the idea. 
Intimacy and ample room. There are many rooms. Hey, I don't have to shack up with Jerry. I don't have to spend, I don't have to shack up with Dave. We're not, we don't have to be together. Just this ample provision has been made in the Father's home. All of these various rooms for all of his sheep. That's, that's the imagery. And what is being communicated there is the intimacy of that. That feeling of home. I believe when we get to heaven, when we step into the Father's house, we are going to feel more at home than we have ever felt at home in this home. More at home. It's the intimacy of being with the Father and being together. Yeah, you got your own place, but listen, we're all together in that one house. And there is that feeling of home that we get. A few years back, somebody gifted Deidre and I with a, a trip to Vienna. And uh, we flew over to Vienna, and on the way back, and we, we enjoyed all the sights and the sounds and everything, but it was this foreign country, foreign language, foreign people, obviously. And uh, on the way back, we flew out of Frankfurt, and we landed, our international flight landed in Denver. And I remember when we landed in Denver, you, I got that sense, and maybe you felt this too, where you just kind of go, I'm home. I mean, not quite, but I'm home, right? I'm among my peeps. These are my people. The, the, the headlines, I can read the headlines, and I understand the headlines. I read the signs, I understand the signs. I am in my own country. I am, I am among my people. They speak my language. They take my currency. Right? Our, our time is the same. Our schedule is the same. These are my folks. I'm at home. But I, I wasn't at home home. Spent a couple hours laying on a concrete floor in a terminal waiting for the next flight to come in. And we landed in Spokane. And suddenly I felt more at home. Ah, Spokane. Now that's what I get. I've been in this airport a hundred times. And right, you get into your own car, familiar smell, familiar sights. You drive out of Washington. You're glad to be out of Washington. You're back in Idaho. Idaho is home. But then you drive up in Sandpoint. Now this is familiar. I've lived 40 years in this place. This place I love. The bridge is familiar. The sights are familiar. The sounds are familiar. All the lights are in the right place. But then when you drive up and you hit the garage door opener and you hear the garage door opener opening the garage door, that vibrating sound, that humming sound, there's something about that that is unlike every other garage door opener in my neighborhood. Then I'm home and you walk in the smell of home and you crawl into your own bed and you drink your own coffee. Am I making you homesick? Hey, you want to go home and crawl into your own bed and drink your own coffee. There's something about being in that place that is home above and unlike any other home. When we step into heaven, we're going to walk into the Father's house and we're going to say, no, this is home. I thought I felt at home at 85 Norwood Drive in Sandpoint, Idaho. That wasn't home. I mean, that was homey. But that wasn't home. We're going to feel like we this is made for us. This is our place. And I don't think that we're going to get into heaven and say, yeah, I mean, I can live with this. Right, I was hoping for a mansion on a large estate with a bunch of peach trees, but it's not what I would have done with the place, but I can get used to this. Right? It's prepared for whom? For us. I go to prepare a place for you. There's an individuality and a, and, and a personalness to the preparation. My shepherd knows me. He knows what I like. He knows what I love. He knows what I hate. He knows what is going to make me feel at home. And when we step into the Father's house, we're going to walk up. There's going to be a dwelling place there for each one of his people. It is customized for us. We are going to be filled with joy. It's going to be unlike your dwelling place. I think God is a God of diversity. We see that in creation. No two insects are alike. No two universes are alike. Uh, no two atoms are alike. They're all mysteriously different. God is a God of diversity. He's glorified in diversity. When we get into heaven, it is going to be a, a massive amount of diversity. As we see the, the wonder of God, His infinite creativity, His infinite imagination, His infinite power on display as He glorifies Himself, even in the diversity of the dwelling places for each of His people. And, and your dwelling place, however big or small it is, will fill you with as, the, as much joy as you can handle for all of eternity. And my dwelling place will, as big or as small as it is, will fill me with as much joy as I can handle for all of eternity. It is prepared for you. 
And since the good shepherd is preparing it, it is perfect. It is perfect. The, the dwelling places in heaven are perfect for each of his individual sheep. He knows me. He knows what makes me feel at home. He knows me better than I know myself. I think I know what makes me feel at home. Lots of 49er stuff, lots of meat. That's what I need. I feel at home with those two things. The Savior knows me better than I know myself. And when I walk in, I'll say, now this, this is my country. I'm a citizen of this land. This is home. And this is my eternal home. Do you think that the Savior, and not only are the preparations in heaven perfect in nature, I believe they're also going to be perfect in number. He knows who his sheep are. He knows those who do not belong to him. That's why I can say to the Pharisees, you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. And he knows his sheep and he calls them by name and he knows and they know his voice and they come to him and he gives them eternal life. Do you think that there are going to be rooms and dwelling places in heaven that the shepherd prepared for people who never made it? You think we're going to be walking through eternal heaven and say, well, look at that empty room. I mean, there's nothing but cobwebs in there. That was supposed to be Mel's spot, but Mel, he didn't, he didn't persevere in the faith. He ended up falling away. Too bad he didn't make it. No, no. The Savior has promised that he will lose none of those whom the Father has given to him. You think we're going to say, well, that's Susan's spot. Well, Susan, she, uh, she followed after the voice of a false teacher and she wandered away and perished. No, no. Jesus has promised that those who, his sheep hear his voice and they do not follow after the voice of a stranger. He has promised to fully save, sanctify, and secure freely forever and fully all those who come to him, all those who have been given to him. There will not be any dwellings there that will be unoccupied. And further, there will not be any dwellings there. There will not be any people there who do not have a dwelling place. It's not as if somebody's going to show up and the Savior said, Well, I didn't see you coming. So I got no dwelling place for you. Why don't you room up with Osmond? I know nobody wants to stay with him, but under the circumstances, it's the best that I can do. There's, there's nothing going to be like that in eternity. One dwelling for each of his sheep, perfectly suited for each of us. It's perfect in nature, perfect in number because he is the perfect Savior. Now, at this point, I would be remiss if I did not say uh, what, it, what, what it means that these dwelling places are prepared. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. What does the preparation look like? I don't know because the text doesn't describe it. Spurgeon said in preaching this, I was reading his message on this passage. Uh, Spurgeon said, I do not know or nor do I profess to know all that the Lord means by this, but when we get to eternity, we'll find out. And I thought, well, that was a cop-out. <laughs> I mean, really. So I'm going to just borrow his cop-out. I don't know, I don't profess to know, but when we get to eternity, we will find out. Let me suggest to you two things. J.C. Ryle suggested in his commentary that by preparation, what the Lord means here is spiritual activity. In other words, that Jesus, having died on the cross, now entered into heaven, presented that atoning work to the Father, to reconcile us to the Father, and now he sits at God's right hand, making intercession for his bride, the church, gathering in and calling in his sheep and all those whom the Father has given to him. And in that sense, he is preparing the place. Now, all of that is true. I don't, I, I don't argue with any of those details. But it seems to me that when he is describing here eternal places, individual residences, that the idea of this just being a spiritual work without any sort of preparation regarding places in heaven for us, it doesn't seem like that fits the text. So I would say, though, I don't disagree with that. I'm, I'm not certain that that's it. Something, though, this last week popped into my head. Now, what I'm about to share with you is a forewarning. These are the musings of my own imagination. But a passage popped into my scripture in my head this last week, and we read it at the beginning of our of our sermon today, or our service. It's Revelation 21. Let me read to you what John writes. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready. Made ready. 
as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. That word made ready is a form of the same word here, prepare a place for you. Is it possible that what the Lord is preparing for us and for his people right now, even as we speak, is the new Jerusalem? That thing which will come down out of heaven, uh, made ready, prepared as a bride for her husband. That's what the preparations are. In some way, Leon Morris says, in some way, Jesus is doing something right now on behalf of his people that we do not fully understand. But I do believe this, that when we get there and when we see it, this is home. This is my dwelling place. This is where I belong. Heaven is a prepared place, but it is a prepared place for a prepared people. Uh, The shepherd not only prepares a place for his sheep, but he prepares his sheep for their place. And that is what is going on even while we are here. The shepherd is doing things to us and in us to prepare us for our place. He is preparing our place for us. He is preparing us for our place. We have an inheritance reserved in heaven for us who are kept by the power of God for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, First Peter chapter 1 says. And we are kept for that inheritance, and that inheritance is being kept for us. Undefiled, imperishable, and it cannot fade away. It is kept for us. We are kept for it. It is being prepared for us. We are being prepared for it. And all of the things that we experience in this life prepare us for our eternal place. Colossians chapter 3, Paul says that God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We don't, we're not qualified to enjoy these things. We're not qualified in and of ourselves to stand in glory or to receive any of the blessings that we've seen described in Scripture regarding heaven. We're not qualified for that. But he qualifies us. That is, he is preparing his sheep for their glory. And even the sufferings that we endure on this earth are intended to prepare us for the place that is being prepared for us. Second Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. The sufferings that we endure prepare us for heaven. Even the discipline that we undergo for the Lord's sake has benefit for the life to come. Paul says bodily discipline is of little profit. But spiritual discipline is profitable not only for this life, but also for the life to come. So our sufferings, our sanctifications, our afflictions, our trials, our tribulations, all of our disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness, our pursuit of holiness, all of that prepares us for the place that he is preparing for us. So now I ask you this, are you prepared and are you being prepared? Have you come to understand that you are a sinner and you do not deserve any of the glory described in this passage or any of the good that's described in this passage? And have you come to understand your own weight and burden of guilt under the law of God for your sin against him? And further, have you come to Jesus Christ to be washed in that blood, cleansed from your sin, and have your sins forgiven and been born again by the Spirit of God? Have you done that? If that is the case, then you have a place being prepared for you, even now, as we speak. And you will go there, and that will be your eternal home. We'll give God glory for that. There are two more promises regarding heaven, but that's what next week is for. That he will personally return for us and that he will perpetually reside with us. We'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the what you have revealed in your word about our future. Again, it is glorious and it is more than we could ever ask for, more than we can imagine, and certainly more than we deserve. Thank you that by your grace and by your Son and in your Son you have purposed to save us and to sanctify us and to secure us for that eternal dwelling and those eternal blessings. We are grateful that you have shown so much grace as to take unworthy sinners and turn them into saints. We thank you that we have a place at your table, a place in your house, and that you are preparing our eternal dwellings for us. 
We long for the day when we will be free from sin and free from guilt and free from any inclination or desire to do anything but to worship and love and praise and adore you forever and ever. We long for that. And so we say with John, even so, come Lord Jesus and come quickly. Thank you for blessing your church. Thank you for blessing your word. And we ask your blessing upon each one who is here today. May you draw those who do not know Christ to your son, that they may repent of their sin and trust Christ and gain with it eternal glory. May you be honored in doing that work for all those who do not know you here, any who do not know you here. And may you be glorified in confirming our confidence in your word and our trust in Christ. Comfort the hearts of those who are afflicted and downcast, that you would be glorified in and through your church, both now and forever. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.